All right, so Sachin, Andrew, it's December, which means it is the most wonderful time of the year because year in review season is upon us. So I want to start things off by asking, what was a defining moment for you personally in 2018? Really has to be at the start of the year when I started it on the peak of Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, super defining moment, not just only for me in 2018, but probably in my life. Andrew, what about you? Well, I'm just really glad that I got to start the year in my uh, home office hanging out with my cuddly labradoodle Kevin and that I got to end the year exactly the same way. So, you know, whether your reflections are personal or professional, I think there is a lot of benefit in pausing to take stock of the bigger picture at this time of year. Now we're going to start to see lots of other organizations do the same thing. Personally, I love it. So in this special episode of the Center of Attention, which we're going to be releasing just about one year after we first started the show, our hosts are going to take a moment to pause and reflect on some of the good things, some of the bad things from the media industry in 2018. We're also going to take a little bit of time to talk about some predictions for the year ahead. Welcome to the Center of Attention, the podcast exploring how digital behavior relates to the attention economy at large. I'm Megan Radonia, the show's producer, and I'm here with Parsley's co-founders and the show's co-hosts, Sachin Kamdar and Andrew Montalenti. Sachin, are you ready to talk year in review? Yes. Andrew? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's dive in. So, Andrew, let's start with your perspective. Um, I'm going to start by asking, what was maybe the most interesting takeaway from data for the media industry in 2018? I think for me, the the big shift that happened in 2018 is that uh, people started to recognize that on the internet, the number one issue is trust. So I think that a lot of the discussion in like meta media circles where people are talking about what's going on in the media industry centered around the fact that in the aftermath of 2016 election, in the aftermath of all the scandals at Facebook and other social media companies, there is a big flight to trust. And I think that trust is going to be a really, really big issue in 2019. Do any surveys or interesting data come to mind that that you read in this past year that have to do with the trust issue? Yeah, we did a little bit of um, data analysis ourselves that was showing that uh, even though there is a decline in social media traffic across the board, uh, driven by those Facebook algorithm changes from a while back, there is a growth in direct traffic to publishers across the board. And uh, that data is pretty encouraging because direct direct traffic represents consumers uh, basically deciding to choose their trustworthy uh, media organizations instead of relying upon the feed to deliver it to them. I think also another, it's not as much of a data point, but a lot of the social media platforms and search engines that are out there have started to come up with new metrics that don't just determine whether a piece of content is engaging, but actually determine whether a source for that content is trustworthy. And so I think that that's pretty uh, interesting as a new form of metrics in 2019. So let's talk about the opposite perspective. In your opinion, what was one of the worst trends in media in 2018? So from my view, the worst thing that happened in 2018 was the pivot to Facebook video and pivot back and the realization that a lot of that pivot was driven by metrics that either were misrepresenting what was happening with consumers or metrics that were sort of gamed, I guess, uh, for an ad business there. 
And so it's really disappointing to me as an analytics junkie to see a situation where a company got a lot of media companies to invest a lot of time and effort in a channel based on a data story they were telling, and then for that data story to actually have been uh, misrepresented and thus led people in the wrong direction. That's pretty much like my worst nightmare as a data analytics guy to, to see uh, any sort of company uh, lead people in the wrong way with their metrics. Yeah, it goes exactly against the first point that you made. The trust was an issue. Exactly. Yeah. And the last question I'm going to ask you is, what's one projection or uh, prediction on your mind for 2019? A prediction on my mind for 2019? So I think like the entire economy, not just media companies, but the whole thing, is going to start really thinking hard about companies that are built to last. That's my big uh, prediction for 2019. So I think think there's like a little bit of, we, we've seen a number of interesting hype cycles kind of boom and bust. Uh, most recently, uh, kind of really big adjustment in the hyped crypt, uh, crypto market and everything like that that went to bust. And I think what you're seeing in the broader market is a little bit of unease about uh, all the sort of exuberance we've had and like the growth we've had. And what's going to happen, I think, is that that unease will settle down and people will say, we need institutions that are built to last. We need companies that are built to last. We need to take a more long-term perspective. It's actually the short-term perspective that's been hurting us. Uh, That's my prediction for 2019, the shift to long-term thinking. All right, Sachin, I'm going to ask you the same questions. And let's start with... What was the most interesting takeaway, in your opinion, from the media industry in 2018? I think it really has to do with movements. Um, We just saw the power of movements to grab media attention and really drive the narrative in a bunch of different ways. Um, And I think like we saw this, you know, looking at our own data, looking at the Me Too movement, just kind of being able to capture the mindset of... um, the, the population at whole, at large, and really kind of driving in um, the kind of zeitgeist overall, the fact that this is a powerful thing that isn't going away. And the, the media written around that showed, showed that as well. But I think your second question is going to be the, the worst part about 2018, right? <laughs> um, and I think it's yep. also movements, right? And I think like, this is kind of the place that we're in right now where voices uh, have a lot of power to get distributed really fast and those voices aren't always going to be the best ones and so um, things like anti-semitism was like uh, something that i looked at in the data for currents and that had a huge spike in 2018 and so um, that's also something that's a little bit concerning to me is that these movements or these voices good and bad are getting more power and you know the question is is how does that all fall out Yeah. Do you think that some of the um, discussion, possible strides that certain platforms have made in the past year towards addressing and filtering disinformation was effective? And do you think we're going to continue to see that struggle into 2019? Yeah, I don't think it was as effective as it needs to be. There's like a whitewashing that happened on YouTube, right? So I think YouTube has been probably the most aggressive about this. Um, in a couple ways, like just general kind of uh, uh, elimination of uh, content that shouldn't be on the platform. But then they did another thing, which is, is pretty smart, is that, you know, they tied all this stuff to money, 
which is that if you had objectionable content in on YouTube, they wouldn't take it off of YouTube um, necessarily, unless if it was you know very objectionable. But they would mark those videos as um, unmonetizable, so they got demonetized, and creators couldn't make money off of them. Um, so I think that's an approach, and that's an algorithmic approach that has had a lot of pushback. I think what um, Facebook is trying to do is uh, mix that with a people plus an algorithmic approach, but I don't know if we've really seen anything come out of that yet, so I'm kind of waiting to see what the take is there. But it, I, here's the thing, like the fact that you don't have a platform doesn't mean that those voices go away. And so the question is, is uh, what happens? Is it that they get distributed on another platform that they don't have right now, which you know was the example of I think Gab, which was a social network that uh, was spun up for the very far right uh, after I think they got removed from Reddit, and it's basically a Reddit clone. Um, so does that happen? And then do things get really concentrated in bad ways on um, sites like that? Uh, or is it something where we just as a population have to really think about how the internet is changing the way that community is being built? Um, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, and really think about how those two reconcile with one another. Yeah, I wonder how many people are going to start thinking about community in a lot of different senses in the next year. It seems like just from um, like focusing on engagement, subscriptions, at least in terms of media this year, trusted sources like what Andrew was talking about, that's all kind yeah. of folding into the same <laughs> same uh, ultimate crux. I, yeah, and I think there is, you know, a... There is like a cry for a source that is just widely trusted, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't think there necessarily is one yet that the general population in the U.S. say this is like the go-to source. Maybe the Associated Press is closest to that, but even there, um, you know, you're not getting your full, you're getting like the, the news as it comes, but you're not getting kind of the full kind of stories that you would get out of other media enterprises. So um, yeah, I think that is... Uh, a question, but I think that's also an opportunity for a company to come in and really grab um, uh, that that opportunity and say, hey, we can be the trusted source. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be so interesting a year from now to come back and reflect on what, everything that's been said so far. Um, and then the last piece, which you already sort of started to talk about, but I don't know if you have another prediction for 2019. I think this, uh, you know, at the end of this year, there's a little bit of a bloodbath happening in the media space with companies getting sold for fire sale prices. Um, there's this notion that, you know, it's going to continue to happen in 2019. I think uh, in some sense, this is a wake up call for a lot of organizations that whatever plays that they've put into place to not only diversify their revenue has to also um, mean that they diversify their traffic. They can't rely on a single source of traffic. They have to understand the ways that attention changes online um, and make sure that it matches with how they're uh, best going to capture their own kind of revenue and their own re opportunity. So I think that's coming. I think it's been talked about uh, for years now, but I think people are kind of realizing it's do or die time and it's time to make that switch, um, whether it's diversifying revenue or diversifying traffic. So I think that is going to be an interesting thing to look at for 2019. All right. So now I want to get into a question that's for both of you. We talk a lot about digital attention, about online content, but what I really want to know is 
what stood out to you in 2018, both online, uh, in print, in the real world, whether it's podcasts, shows, books, songs and albums, movies. I want to know what your favorites were of 2018. What would your personal best of list be? Yeah, so for me personally, an interesting thing that's been happening more and more in 2018 for me is a crossover between sort of written content and audio content. That's probably been uh, the biggest uh, interesting crossover. So I'll give a couple of examples. Um, So one is that uh, I think both Sachin and I have done a little bit of reading on this, but there was a blockbuster bit of journalism done by the Wall Street Journal on Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. And the author behind that published a book called Bad Blood um, that covered all of that. And it just so happened that this year I decided to uh, switch over to doing not just podcasts, but also audiobooks. So I got Bad Blood uh, on audio. Uh, I also read the reporting in the Wall Street Journal on this. And I even watched a video interview with the journalist uh, who kind of went into depth about tracking down the unethical behavior of elizabeth holmes so i think so that they, that's like they captured yeah. you in all possible form factors yeah exactly like <laughs> and i think it was really cool because it felt like i was getting more and more sort of of an angle on the story by using the different media forms right so the reporting was very like you know uh time-based and it was like reacting to the convictions that were coming down and like the court cases and stuff but providing the context but then the interview with the journalist was very much you know how did he go about getting all this information and finding out what was really going on and how did the company react to all of the questions he was asking and then the audiobook was really great because i got to listen to it in pieces and it kind of felt almost like this uh, you know, real world novel that was unfolding, right? You know, this like story with an arc, uh, both about the reporting behind it and then the story itself at Theranos. So I just felt like I got kind of a great uh, multimedia experience around that overall. Yeah, I, I got I have the same feeling with um, The Daily and the New York Times podcast, because I'll read an article uh, on the New York Times um, that then, you know, uh, uh, they'll do an interview with the reporter or the journalist uh, the day after. And uh, I think when I initially saw that, I'm like, yeah, well, I already read the article. It's, what's the like interest in me listening to this interview? But then I listen to the interview. I'm like, oh, there's so much more to this that that you like get to extract out of just interviewing the reporter about the process of writing that story. That just makes it so much more rich. So I, I definitely, uh, I definitely agree with you. And I think going toward the idea of digital attention, I think we talked about in past episodes how audio is kind of interesting because it adds this new uh, sort of background uh, content consumption pattern where like, you know, maybe you fit it in into workouts or walks outside or commutes to work or whatever else, or maybe you even listen to it on background when you're consuming some other media. Uh, And I think that like, it's kind of great that... Uh, both uh, well-produced podcast series and well-produced audiobooks provide sort of a long arc of audio content, but then usually broken up into chunks where you can listen to them like 20 to 30 minutes at a time. So it's like this nice balance between going really deep on a subject, but not having to consume it all at once, which I, I find really appealing. 
Sachin, did you have any podcasts or articles or um, anything else that stood out to you as great content in 2018? I don't know if this is cheating or not. Like, does it have to be created in 2018 or is it just something that I listened to in 2018? It could be something you discovered in 2018. Okay, cool. Um, So I actually rewatched The Sopranos uh, this Mm. year. And uh, man, was that such a well-written, acted show with um, like such interesting character development and arcs. Uh, I love that. Like, is probably one of my top shows ever after rewatching it in 2018. Um, so that's that's definitely on there. Um, there's a book that I just finished that I really enjoyed. I'm like, uh, I don't know a lot about physics, but I always get interested in reading about it. Um, and so there's this Italian physicist, Carlo uh, Carla- Rovelli. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I- am obsessed with him (laughs) yeah so i just read seven brief lessons on physics and i really enjoyed reading that that book is beautiful he had a new one that came out this year yeah it was about time it was about time i'm not able to remember the actual title but i think seven brief lessons was my favorite so it was poetic it was really beautiful exactly exactly and 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 it was translated too which was really surprising to me that it like uh the translation was so good yeah, whoever translated that book, master. I don't know if it was him or whoever works at uh, Riverhead, but yeah, it was beautiful. It was very lyrical. All right, this is awesome. I've got a full list now of things that I have to read and watch and see and rewatch. Um, so let's kind of uh, move on and talk about some uh, plus ones and minus ones for this week. Sounds great. So for this week, we're going to take a plus one or minus one position on whether the following technologies that are going to evolve in 2019 are going to transform the media industry or not. So plus one, if you think the technology will transform the media industry and minus one, if not. So the first technology we're going to talk about here is browsers, both on mobile and desktop, just how browser technology is changing, which vendors are controlling the landscape um, and how usage patterns around browsers are changing. Do you think this is important and transformative for the media industry, Sachin? I think it's certainly important. I don't think uh, browsers are going away anytime soon, uh, both desktop and mobile. So a focus there is important. Now, whether the new technologies around privacy with companies like Brave, um, which also, I guess, ties into uh, blockchain, uh, Vivaldi has emerged as well. You have uh, Microsoft developing a new browser uh, based on Chromium, which is the open source framework for uh, Chrome, um, Google's Chrome. You have Safari. I don't think anything that has happening in the next year is going to transform the media industry. I think there is a general direction to take more ownership over user privacy, and I think that's probably a good trend overall. Yeah, and I'll give a little bit of technical color on the browser thing. So the the news here is that um, Safari is widely used on iOS and macOS, and Chrome is super widely used across the board, both on desktop and mobile. It's now the browser with the most uh, market share. Uh, and Microsoft was developing its own engine, which is called Edge, but recently announced that they're kind of shifting to just consolidating around Google's engine, which is called Chromium. So, uh, so the interesting thing that's going on here is that open source politics and uh, the kind of privacy stances of the various uh, large tech companies uh, are actually kind of playing out in browser technology. So I'm plus one on media companies paying attention to this. I think browsers are critical to their businesses and what games the 
big tech companies play with different browsers will have a big effect on their business. And they also have to pay attention to the fact that consumers are more empowered than ever to switch their browser. And uh, quite a lot are switching between browsers these days. So they have to keep a close eye on that as well. But I do think there's the notion that there are um, things that, you know, for example, Google's doing with Chrome to lock people in by really changing the browser as not just like a place where you visit websites, but it's now a mechanism to discover stuff. So that's like the Chrome, uh, Chrome suggestions, the Google discover stuff. Um, when you sign in, you get like personalized things in, inside of Chrome. So I think there is some like lock-in mentality that they're trying to play as these new browsers emerge or as uh, consumer kind of uh, decision-making shifts around what they should use. Yeah, actually, I have a related plus one or minus one, Sachin, which is, um, do you think uh, internet users should be strongly supporting Firefox as the open source, totally independent of corporate control browser in the market? I am plus one on that. Uh, I think the more uh, opportunities there are out there, the better it is for consumers overall. And having somebody that's independent, like a Firefox, uh, means that you have somebody that is really just trying to build a browser uh, that has the, you know, potentially the best experience for their end users overall, or they have their end users in mind. But they've gone through some ups and downs. So, you know, it, I, I think the jury's still out on whether they're going to be able to have something that uh, takes their ranking back to the top where they used to be relative to something like uh, a Google Chrome or Safari. What's your take? Yeah, I'm also very strongly plus one on Firefox. I'm personally a user of both Firefox and Chrome. Um, and I think that Firefox plays an important role in much the same way Wikipedia does in terms of sort of trust in uh, an area that is actually really important, which is you know the main program that people use to access information everywhere. Um, I kind of wish, uh, I personally wish that Chrome didn't have the market share it did. I wish it was a two-horse race between Chrome and Firefox. That would actually be better for consumers and the competition would be healthy. So I'm with you that I, I hope that their market share ticks up and uh, that happens again. It would be a very bad thing for the web, I think, if their market share dropped to some negligible number like 5%. Well, let's move on to another technology um, which I just briefly mentioned, blockchain. Um, so there was a company called Civil that's ran in some troubles in the past like couple of months um, that were trying to leverage blockchain technology inside of the media industry. So Andrew, maybe give a little explainer to um, to the to the listeners around what blockchain is and how it applies to media, and then give me your take. Do you think that will actually transform the media industry? Well, Sachin, I'm minus one because I don't understand how blockchain helps the media industry. <laughs> so we're just at a loss here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can give you my take on, uh, you know, maybe what they're trying to accomplish sure. as a way to... Uh, you you go to record. more startup CEO conferences than I do. Tell me what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's this notion that um, th there's probably a couple of different ways that it can help out. One way is that it can help uh, be the kind of ledger or the record for how content gets distributed and changed on the internet. So if you write a piece of content as a freelancer and that gets placed in five different places, you're gonna always get credit for that because that's on the like blockchain record as being your piece of content. So as a way to 
um, make sure that the people that are creating stuff get what they should and there's not plagiarism. That could be a potential form of application for it. I think there's another area which is I think is more talked about, which is on the advertising side as a way to um, keep track of all of the, you know, vendors, players that are in the ad tech space that are taking cuts off of um, the revenue that a publisher makes or the revenue or the money that a brand is spending, which I think a lot of people have a big question mark around what happens there. And if you use blockchain as a technology to kind of track all that stuff, then maybe that brings better transparency, brings better um, uh, efficiency to the system and, and maybe cleans up some bad actors in that space. Uh, but I don't think anybody's actually gotten anywhere notable on any of those two ideas or other ideas that I'm sure people have around how to leverage blockchain to make it viable for this industry. So I'm also minus one. I don't see it transforming the media industry anytime soon. Um, okay, so the next one we're going to talk about is another equally kind of hyped uh, area of uh, technology these days, and it'll take us in a different direction, which is uh Let's talk about smart speakers, and I guess actually more broadly than those, uh, just personal assistants like Alexa and uh, the Google Assistant and so on. Um, do we think that those are going to have a big effect on the media industry in 2019? I think it will have an effect. I don't think it's going to change the media industry. I think it's an opportunity to reach people in uh, additional places that you normally wouldn't be able to reach them, and that's with, um, you know, uh, when you're just kind of making dinner or when you're uh, waking up and you want to hear the news for the day. Um, so I think audio is uh, definitely transitioning to these areas. And I think more people are getting value out of this um, new technology that that's kind of come into play over the past year or so. Um, I definitely get value out of it myself. Um, I use Google Home and, uh, you know, I listen to WNYC through it uh, almost every morning. Yeah, I'm plus one on it too. I'm I'm personally more plus one on assistance than I am on the speakers themselves. I have a uh, Google Mini, and I have, uh, you know, I kind of use it to some degree, but I find it does, hasn't like totally fit into my workflow yet. But for me, Google Assistant, I've been getting more and more usage of, and I've been getting more and more usage of just not only to do searches, but also to, you know, hear what's in the news right now and kind of get those quick updates. Um, so I think that, you know, more and more smarts will get built in to the assistance. And you even saw that, I think, within the span of this year. So that'll just keep getting better. And content is certainly a big source of information that assistants can take advantage of. Um, so related to that, uh, I guess something that all of the big tech companies have been plowing uh, R&D research or R&D resources into has been artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's been probably as big a buzzword as crypto has in uh, 2018. Um, so I guess, do we think that, uh, you know, we're going to see some big changes in the news industry as a result of AI? I guess we saw a company that is sort of an AI that writes news narratives get acquired uh, earlier this year. I think that was a narrative science, if I remember correctly. Um, and we also saw some uh, media companies investing in AI and machine learning and their own teams. Do we think that there's going to be an impact from all these technologies here? I have to be plus one because it's technology that we're using ourselves at Parsley to help uh, 
this industry in particular in terms of um, getting value out of kind of all this attention that um, they see and structuring it in ways that make sense. Um, but I think like the actual true kind of uh, AI that I think people are envisioning maybe from a consumer perspective is farther off. So your ability to write content about sports or earnings reports, that's like very structured reporting that I think a machine does really well um, reporting around. But I think we're still pretty far off from a place where a machine can write, um, you know, a report on the latest thing that happened with Robert Mueller. Um, I think that's not something that is going to happen soon. Um, I think that stuff is possible, uh, but I think it's farther off. And, and when it does come, it, it certainly will tra- transform the industry. Yeah, and I'm going to be plus one and plus one on this as well. Uh, Parsley does do quite a lot these days in the world of machine learning and natural language processing. And the thing I noticed in 2018 is that the technology uh, under the hood, some of the techniques and research and also the availability of hardware to do this and uh, even the open source tools that you can use to do it are just way, way better than when I first started uh, doing work in this area way back in like 2009, 2010. Um, it's really like an order of magnitude or several orders of magnitude better uh, than it was in that time period. So I just think that that process is going to accelerate. And so there's going to be a lot of really cool things you can do in terms of automating how you process uh, text, image, and video content on the web uh, through 2019. So I'm plus one on this technology. I do think it has uh, sometimes a little bit of a potential to almost like suck up all the oxygen in the room. It's like magic pixie dust that you sprinkle on a problem. And then you're like, oh, we'll just use ML for that. We'll just use AI for that. And that'll solve all our problems. And that can be pretty dangerous. But uh, the underlying technology has a huge amount of potential. So you guys, I think that's it for this episode. So to everyone who listened, thank you. And I want to give an especially big thank you to everyone who's been listening along with us for this whole past year. We really appreciate you and we're glad that you could join us and hope you've learned something. You can subscribe to The Center of Attention on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Spotify. If you enjoy the show, please tell a colleague or tell a friend. You can also follow our hosts on Twitter. Andrew is at Amontalenti and Sachin is at Sachin Kamdar. Thanks again for listening and remember, This whole thing was written by AI. Until next time. (laughs) Perfect.